0: to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today, we are going to be talking about a team that is always at the top of the headlines, regardless of how good they are, but they're certainly much better this year than they have been in the past. That team is the Los Angeles Lakers. So I'm here today with Nathan Smith. And Nathan, how are you?
1: I'm doing pretty well, Nick. Uh, Glad to be here. Uh, Lakers are 14-9 on a three-game win streak, so not much to complain about on my end.
0: And for once, there isn't all that much to complain about on my end either, even though I certainly would long for the days when our teams were playing each other in the Western Conference Finals, especially if we get to win a couple of them. But that's never going to happen.
1: Oh, those were the good old days.
0: Those were the good old days. But there are pretty good days for the Lakers right about now. And let's start with, I think, the reason, really the single reason why the Lakers have been so much better this year than they were last year. Of course, the four-year, $154 million contract from LeBron James. LeBron had been signing one-year deals with player options for basically the entirety of his time in Cleveland. So for him to sign not only with the Lakers in free agency, but to commit to a four-year deal is really huge for them.
1: Yeah, I think that was the part that stuck out the most to me. Uh, Going into the free agency period, um, I did expect the Lakers to land LeBron. But I was a little, um, I guess, skeptical if they'd be able to pull anything off more than a one-on-one. So the fact that he committed for uh, four years um, was not only encouraging, but also kind of uh, showed what, what he views the state of the Lakers roster to be as far as the young core.
0: We'll also get into their series of one-year deals in a minute, but I think the best part from the Lakers' standpoint about LeBron signing for four years, other than you know the obvious fact that he's going to play there for the next four years— It allows them to sort of see what they have with the young players this year, and then if they decide to make a big push, if they disappoint in the playoffs or what have you on that front, they can make a bunch of moves in the offseason, but if he'd signed to a one and one deal, they really would sort of have to push all their chips in to the center of the table to try and get pieces around him this year that would make him want to consider sticking around. but. As it is, they can still work within the longer time horizons of their younger players without having to sacrifice enough to sort of go into a win-now mode that we saw with the Cavaliers in the last four years.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a great point, Nick. Um, we saw some of the moves that the Cavs would make, such as let's take uh, Kyle Korver, for example. Uh, on the court it was more than fine. Uh, Korver was a great contributor, a uh, solid role-player for him, one of the best three-point shooters ever. But um, I believe they had to give up a first-round pick, if not another draft pick as well, to get them. And those were, um, well, it's that's not necessarily a bad deal in itself. In and of itself, when you make four or five of those deals and kind of um, make your franchise kind of hamstrung um, in terms of future resources and everything, sure, you're going to raise your ceiling in terms of uh, in terms of winning now, which is exactly what they did, is capturing a title with LeBron. But you're of course going to um handicap yourself as well and we'll be seeing that next off season and um in a couple years to come as there the Cavs are a little light on draft picks of course with the Lakers um, like you alluded to that's not really going to be the case the Lakers have uh younger players that are certainly more highly regarded than the Cavs did at least last year and this core is much more likely to stay i'm not guaranteeing it'll stay intact but it's much much more likely to stay intact than a lot of different people around the NBA would would have you believe um, if you just base things on headlines alone going into the season.
0: And the other thing with LeBron signing with the Lakers, the Lakers' ownership situation hasn't been as stable over the last decade as it was during the decades that Jerry Buss ruled over the team during the Showtime era and even further back, but there are a few ownership situations that I think are more miserable to work under than Dan Gilbert's, given his incredibly short leash on coaches, his incredibly short leash on front office executives, and a lot of the reporting surrounding LeBron's departure, especially recently, the Athletic has gone back and talked to some of the people involved. And it certainly sounds like the Kyrie Irving trade was a bit of the beginning of the end for the Cavaliers. and. I'm not sure that a more competent ownership situation would have let that situation devolve to the point where Kyrie was basically demanding a trade because I'm not sure a competent front office would have fired David Griffin in the first place. And given that the LeBron Dan Gilbert relationship was fraught even before the comic sans letter after his departure, it certainly does help to go from a team that is incredibly unstable on the basketball side because the owner has decided that his experience with Quicken Loans makes him a viable evaluator of NBA talent. That's a lot dicer of a situation than going to one of the most established teams in professional sports.
1: Absolutely, I think the uh, Comic Sans letter that you alluded to, while that was a few years back, uh, totally illustrates what what's going on in terms of uh, how Dan Gilbert views not only the Cavaliers but views himself as well. I don't think that David Griffin, who was ultimately fired by Gilbert and the Cavs, was really the problem. I don't, I'm don't. i not saying he was necessarily great by any means, but I think the problem was much more so Gilbert. Um, he definitely is one of those owners that kind of wants to dip his hands um, in the pot and kind of have his own imprint on things, which, like you said, is, like you alluded to at least, is uh, somewhat questionable considering that he is just, uh, I mean, what is he, the, the CEO of Quicken Loans, I guess. Um, but I really, as far as Kyrie, I really don't think that most front offices would have handled the situation quite that way. We can look at Kawhi Leonard with the Spurs, for example. Now, just to be clear, I do think that the Raptors won that trade, um, clearly. But the Spurs at least did get, you know, a DeMar DeRozan. Um, you know, it's not like they got a hurt and flawed Isaiah Thomas an okay Jay Crowder and a non-existent Ante Zizic. So I, I really think that the Cavs really kind of let Kyrie Irving force the situation and hold all the leverage when in reality, the you know situation was he was under contract. So he's not really the one that had leverage. Um, a lot of these situations are, you're not really going to get true value for a superstar like Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, Kyrie Irving. Some of these guys have gotten traded, but, Certainly the, the Spurs um, at least got something, whereas the Cavs kind of just, as you said, kind of opened up the door for the beginning of the end.
0: And this is a no Isaiah Thomas slander podcast, even though I'm sure given his time with the Lakers, it might be easy for you to slander him.
1: <laughs> I like IT. too. I like him.
0: I will say this about the trade though. The fact that Isaiah Thomas was the centerpiece of that deal seemed very much like a Dan Gilbert stamp on the whole situation. The idea, and especially something that was even talked about coming into this season, that he thought the Cows might be a playoff contender. The Isaiah Thomas trade had all the hallmarks of, we want to win now to try and keep LeBron James around. And on the one hand, if you're Cleveland, you had to do everything you possibly could to convince LeBron to stay. On the other hand, that was a really short-term focused deal that, it certainly seems like they did not account for the extent of Isaiah's injury during that deal. And part of that, I'm willing to bet, is the Celtics not being entirely forthcoming with his medical information. But even without that, that was a huge risk of them to take. But let's talk about some smaller risks and talk more about the Lakers rather than the Cavaliers' trades. The one-year deals that the Lakers gave out this offseason to four veterans, JaVale McGee, Rajon Rondo, Lance Stevenson, and Michael Beasley, one of those deals is looking like an absolute home run. So let's start with that. How surprised have you been by what JaVale McGee has been able to do for the Lakers this season?
1: I mean, I've definitely been moderately surprised, but maybe not over the top or to the degree of NBA Twitter. Uh, Javel McGee was always someone that, you know, you knew as a point per minute player, um, type guy, you know, 15 minutes or so with the Warriors, even less at times highly productive in those minutes. It was, the question was really just, can he play sustained minutes and can he, you know, everybody would always say, Oh, sure. He's good for 15 minutes or 10 minutes, but he can't play 30, um, to start this season, he showed he was fully capable of playing 30, 35 minutes a game. I think, um, and I'm sure we'll touch on Tyson Chandler more, but I think it was very smart of the Lakers to uh, bring someone in that can relieve McGee a little bit. While I do think he was, of course, doing great in those 30, 35 minutes to start the year, um, the odds of him being able to sustain that throughout an entire season and stay healthy were very low. So if we can keep him more in that 25 to 28-minute range or or something along those lines, he should be able to continue um, a a pretty high level of play for the Lakers.
0: Yeah, I will admit, I wasn't... As much surprised by how he played because this is exactly the kind of player that the Warriors have seen for the last few years in McGee. It's more what you talked about already with his ability to sustain that for longer than 10, 15 minutes at a time. And I'm not sure it's as much that he can't play 30 minutes a night, period, but more that he's got such a checkered injury history and the Lakers are already so thin up front. First of all, The Tyson Chandler signing makes that lack of depth up front a lot less pressing, but even without Chandler, I think trying to get JaVale to play 30, 35 minutes a night without getting hurt was going to really be the stopping point on that front. But speaking of getting hurt, Rajon Rondo has had an interesting year so far. He had the suspension for his involvement in the Brandon Ingram-Chris Paul fight The thing about Rondo, and I saw this during his tenure with the Kings, he does really well at moving the ball and getting the team to move the ball a lot more, but I've never seen anyone hunt for assists in the way that Rondo does, in the way that he'll be literally right under the basket and decide to throw it out for a hopeful assist rather than take the easy two at the basket. His three-point shooting has been super hot to start the year. I doubt that continues, but he's certainly better at that than he was when he was in Boston. What are your thoughts on Rajon Rondo and his fit on this Lakers roster?
1: Would you believe me if I told you that Rajon Rondo was shooting um, his three-point field goal attempts in, in the uh, 91st percentile in the NBA this year?
0: I mean, I would now you told me.
1: <laughs> True, i probably ruined that. But um, 45% is... Forty five percent is not from three is obviously not going to be um sustainable, I wouldn't think. But a couple improvements he has made over the course of his career, um, if you zoom out a little bit, I always noticed uh what you what you talked about with the um whole driving right under the basket. He would seemingly be open for a layup and kick it out. And whether the you know, whether he would get an assist or not uh seemed to be something he would always do. He's gotten a little bit better at that at least. Um he's still, of course, the epitome of a pass first player. Um, but more than anything, even more impressive than at least fixing that little uh, flaw was would definitely be his um his three point shooting. He's still by no means um an elite three point shooter, or you could say he's you could argue he's not even a good three point shooter. But he's a really smart player. Of course, that's never been the question with Rondo. So taking uh, high percentage threes at least helps a little bit. Um, knowing when to find his shot in the flow of the offense helps, and then being a player that as we uh, touched on, is so um, pass oriented. Is always looking to pass first. He's not really looking to to come down the court and oh, I got to look for my shot. I got to find my shot. He's not really that type of player. So when he takes the shots in the flow of the offense and takes high percentage looks and um, you know corner threes and and things of that nature, um, he really really expands his game and not only becomes um, a leader in terms of a pure point guard, but um, becomes more integral to the uh, Lakers, Lakers' scoring as well.
0: On the other side, he's been incredibly overrated on the defensive end for at least the last half decade or so. And I think even saying that he's mediocre on defense would still be relying too much on his past reputation. And given that overall the Lakers have been a better defensive team than they have been an offensive team this year, and given that the guy that Rajan Rondo is backing up, who we will talk more about later, is such a defensive stalwart already at this point in his young career, I just don't understand why the Lakers would rely on him for as heavy a minute role as he had early in the season when the guy ahead of him does basically everything except, ironically enough, shoot three-pointers better than Rajan at this point in his career.
1: Yeah, and I, I am a fan of Luke Walden. I like what he's done as a head coach. But one thing that did really make my make me scratch my head was um, just two, three, four, five too many minutes for Rondo, and two, three, four, five um, or or less minutes for Lonzo Ball than than he should have at the very least. I I wanted to see something along the lines of thirty two minutes a game for Lonzo, which um he's you know he's been able to get to that range of course with the Rondo injury, but at the end of the game, we'd have Rondo uh, closing out the game at times, um, which you can argue for and against. But certainly, from the defensive end, it's it's not even close. You want Lonzo Ball out there, and I, I don't even I don't think it even necessarily comes down to Ball versus Rondo. Um, there's ways you could have both of them on the court, but just point blank, Lonzo Ball absolutely has to be on the court to end the game. He's you know the Lakers' best defensive player, um, and uh, you know this. This may shock a lot of people until um, the word starts to get out a little more, but, you know, in all um, in all defensive first-team or second-team candidate, honestly. So when you've got a guy like him that can guard point guards, shooting guards, and even step onto forwards, we saw him do a great job on uh, Harrison Barnes, for instance. He's absolutely got to be in the game. Um, you've also got the perspective of Lonzo needs to, to grow and learn and mature, um, along with the other 20, 21, et cetera-year-old um, players that the Lakers have. So. While I do love Rondo and and I, I still do like the signing, I think, um, bar nothing, Lonzo Ball has to be out there for 32-plus minutes a game.
0: And we'll talk more about Lonzo later on as well, but someone else who certainly could be giving up more minutes to benefit Lonzo. Lance Stevenson has been mostly excised from the rotation in the past few games, and That, I think, is a clear positive for the Lakers because he's really not all that great on the defensive end, and if he's not dribbling the air out of the ball trying to find a shot for himself, he's not helping you much on that end of the floor either. Given the other players on the Lakers, Lance Stevenson shooting the ball is almost always a bad outcome for your offense.
1: I cannot tell you how many times this year when I've watched the Lakers, I've seen Lance just like you said dribble the air out of the ball and take a bad contested two and miss it wildly. I I really am struggling to find something positive to say honestly other than the game against Phoenix where he had a near triple double. I think that he just um takes away playing time pretty much from guys like uh, Josh Hart and if you want to go if you want to go from more of a long-term perspective like guys like Stephi McKylek but even Michael Beasley I think is uh much more Capable contributor, he grades out extremely well uh, when it comes to just pure offensive um, numbers. The last couple years, both players are going to really give you. As far as Beasley and Lance are going to give you, you know, next to nothing on the defensive end, really. So, and the way I see it is, what? Why not give the playing time to a Beasley, a guy that's going to be way better offensively, and B, um, just increase the the minutes per game for guys like Josh Hart? Makes a lot more sense for the Lakers as far as uh, spacing the floor with shooting ability. And then and as far as, you know, you just want to obviously give playing time to a guy like Hart, a young up-and-coming guy, as opposed to Lance, who kind of hogs up usage and and is not really the most uh, efficient basketball player.
0: So you mentioned Svi Kaila in passing. Let's go now to the rookies. So Svi looked incredible. In Summer League, I saw him at the Sacramento Summer League, and he looked like one of those late draft steals. Someone who maybe doesn't have that great of an all-around game, but is such a good shooter that it almost doesn't matter. And he's really struggled to start the season, but given how incredibly talented of a shooter he is, part of me wonders if he's struggled so much to start the year just because he hasn't had a consistent role at all. And even though it's hard to play a guy who's shooting less than 30% both from the floor and from three, I don't see any reason why the Lakers wouldn't want to run him out there more often than a Lance Stevenson, or even more often than a James Caldwell Pope. Just even the fury of him at least spacing out behind the arc, where other teams have to pretend to defend him, it's probably going to help your offense more than having Lance run the ball out there.
1: Yeah, and and that's the thing. Even... At the, at this current stage of his development where he's, you know, nothing more than a, a 10th, 11th guy on the bench, Svima Kylik is still going to make people get out there and guard him. Um, maybe not to the level of a J.J. Redick or Kyle Korver in terms of how much they stretch the defense and how much they force people to chase them around, but, but it, at least some version of that. He's known as a shooter and even some guys that are not great shooters, but their reputation is that they're shooters. Um, can even stretch the defense and, and pull them out um, just based on reputation alone and just game planning alone as far as we don't want that guy taking open threes. Um, it's really a win-win situation. You give Svee Mikhailek a few more minutes and bump Lance from the rotation, and you get um, a guy that's going to be able to you know hopefully improve a little bit, stretch the defense a little bit, come in with low expectations, so um, can easily over-deliver. And then you eliminate a guy from the rotation that's wildly inefficient as far as the offensive end. And as far as the defensive ability between either of them, I think it's almost irrelevant, honestly, because Lance is really not that, that great at it except for a couple small areas. And then Svee might not be great yet, sure, but it'll give him a chance to improve defensively as well as overall.
0: And the other Lakers rookie this year, Mo Wagner, missed the start of the season – has gotten a little bit of playing time recently, scored his first NBA points a little while ago. He almost looked better in Summer League than Sviwakaila to me, just because he is the kind of stretch four, stretch five that any NBA team could use right now. And he looked a lot better on the defensive end than I thought he would his feet. Being not that great in terms of lateral quickness is not as much of an issue as I thought it would be. He's, I think, preternaturally smart on the defensive end for a rookie, even though almost all rookies are going to look bad on the defensive end. I'm hoping that he's going to get more playing time going forward, especially given the Lakers' relative lack of depth up front. But do you think he's going to? be more of a developmental player this year behind JaVale and Tyson Chandler, or do you think he might get more runs as the season
1: goes on? I do think he'll be more of a developmental player this year, um, but that's that's more so having to do with the Lakers' roster construction, rotation, and how I think their season's going to shake out. Uh, it's not really a knock on Mo Wagner or anything like that. Um, I I really did like his, his game. I didn't watch him a ton at Michigan, but um, I sure as heck watched a lot of tape on him over the summer um as the Lakers after the Lakers drafted him and then of course during summer league where in uh before suffering an injury that kept him out for the rest of summer league, he really was dominating. Um I think they're probably just gonna hopefully by the end of the year be a guy that can play uh ten, twelve minutes a game and uh maybe make a three, um if ne- if not certainly stretch the defense um as we kind of alluded to with Steve McKay. I am excited for his future going forward. It's, he's a really athletic kid that can uh, light it up from the outside. But as far as this year, if he could just be more of that kind of um, stretch the defense and maybe um, get hot here or there on, on on a night when he gets the extra opportunity with with the player out of the lineup or something like that.
0: Let's talk more in depth about the Lakers' rotations so far this season. And I wanted to start off by talking about the big man rotation Getting Tyson Chandler as a buyout guy this early in the season, maybe it's a bit different from the fan perspective, but certainly from my perspective, it seems like he really turned their season around just because they didn't have to try something stupid like running Kyle Kuzma out at center when he was going to get absolutely plastered on the defensive end every time. And just having a second really solid, lob-focused shot blocker in the paint, I think has made a huge difference for the Lakers this year. But do you think that's been overstated, sort of how much Tyson Chandler has contributed to turning their season around after what was a surprisingly tepid start from them?
1: Uh, believe it or not, I, I actually don't. Um I thought he'd be, you know, a nice impact, but but, you know, of course a uh, ten to fifteen minute veteran presence clubhouse type of impact. Not really um I guess not really to this level. He's kind of outperformed expectations a bit. Um the Lakers, I believe, were bottom ten, bottom ten or twelve in defensive efficiency before his arrival, and now they're all the way up to seventh best in that department. While a lot of that does have to do with coaching, um, the players just generally improving and um, getting better within the scheme. You certainly have to credit Tyson Chandler as well. Um, he had a fantastic block uh, to seal and to clinch a game as the buzzer was about to go off. I think in only his second or third game with the club, even played. I th- want to say a full fourth quarter and, and closed out the game um, ahead of JaVale McGee. So that um, that it doesn't by any means mean that he's going to overtake McGee. He's going to be an excellent compliment to him. But uh, it just shows you how, how well he's um, played since coming over, really looked revitalized. And I certainly can't blame him after uh, leaving the situation he was in, where he gets a lot of uh, uh, coaches' decisions, DNPs, and really just being in a team that was, tanking for lack of a better term and now now coming to LA and playing with the king. So I I don't not surprising I guess is what I'm trying to say that he's uh played in such a revitalized way and has really been helping the second unit.
0: So let's now talk about someone who we danced around talking about earlier in the podcast. I wanted to devote some time here to talking about Monto Ball. And Monto Ball is the archetype of the kind of player that tends to get dramatically underrated. He does basically every single thing that a basketball player can do on a basketball court really well. And the one thing that he is not particularly great at, at least at this point in his career, is exactly the one thing that everybody will focus on. His scoring numbers generally, his shooting efficiency numbers quite rough, but his defense, I wouldn't quite say first-team defense at this point, but I think mean, he'll definitely be a solid contender for one of the second-team guard spots. He's been incredible on that end of the floor. He's a really intuitive passer. He's almost the opposite of Rajon Rondo in that he will just make the best play, whether or not he's likely to get an assist from it. He'll pass the ball ahead in transition, get a ton of hockey assists. And he helps a lot on the boards for any kind of guard, but especially for a point guard. And so people, maybe because of the Levar situation, tend to look for all the possible ways to criticize Rondo. Maybe it's Levar, Maybe it's just being in the Los Angeles media market. But I think it's really tough because he's such a good basketball player except for the one thing that everybody is going to focus on all the time. And it doesn't work as well this year because he's had a pretty rough season. But if you were to tell me last year whether I could have Andrew Wiggins from two years ago or Lonzo Ball on my team, I might be one of the only people that would do this, but I would take Lonzo every time because there are plenty of other people who can score. There are four other players on the court who can score at any given time, but Lonzo makes the team better in every sort of way that isn't going to show up in the race for the scoring title
1: yeah it's kind of it's kind of insane how how often people undervalue and and kind of just forget about the fact that defense is a huge part of basketball um he's he's definitely not an elite scorer and he might not ever be but he does literally every other thing very well um his defense being the main thing, of course, he'll lock down point guards, shooting guards, small forwards. And I think the hockey assist that you brought up is a great point. Uh, another thing, of course, that doesn't show up in the box score is that even, you know, while racking up a lot of assists and playing in a very efficient way, there's all those, you know, hockey assists, if you will, that don't that don't show up in the box score, where it's because he made the right play so decisively and so quickly that allowed... um you know, that allowed a, a two on one or three on two break to develop or, or created an open shot for a teammate. So unless you're really watching the Lakers every day, it, it is really hard to to understand the full impact that Lonzo has. And I think of course the LeVar ball and the LA media type um type things are, you know, part of the contribute at least partially to the perception of him. But also it, it really, if you're not watching him every day, it's it's easy to just look at Oh, eight points, four assists and five boards and say and just kinda of lazily say, Oh, he's a bust, but but this kid is clearly something special. And I think that um the fans that are really, really in tune with the NBA and, and really uh paying attention to the little things in the full the full context of a player's game, I think that they know that.
0: Let's talk about the remaining young wings and guards for the Lakers and I wanted to do a quick thought experiment here. So between Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma and Josh Hart, who do you think has been the most positive contributor to the Lakers this season? Because I think my answer is going to be different from yours, but I want to see what your thoughts are.
1: Uh full disclosure, love all three uh just as a fan, but it's definitely not Brandon Ingram. Um I love Brandon Ingram. He's going to be fantastic. He'll be he'll be more than fine. But he's t- he's been too inefficient um this season. He's he's taken a, a wild amount of contested twos, which I don't really want to go on about that, but um as far as Kuzma or Hart, th- that's tough. I LeBron's brought up that he he's always looking for um Kuzma just because um Kuzma's a guy that's gonna get out on the break. He's he's a guy that can score from uh from you know basically anywhere. Um but, you know that's that's what he leans on, is a scoring ability. But I I guess you still have to give the edge to Kuzma. I really want to say Hart, but Kuzma's scoring is probably just too good right now um, combined with his improvement as a playmaker. And he's still not a great defender. Um, that's going to be – that's a long road. He's got to go for – uh, travel down for that. But he's at least improved his defensive effort. And you can tell that what um, what Luke Walton's been coaching him up on has has at least translated some. The reason I almost wanted to say Hart um, – or not the reason, but, but one uh, contributing factor, and this just kind of illustrates Josh Hart as a player. Um, I don't want to take just, I don't want to base this just on, on one game, but it is worth noting that first, the Phoenix Suns the other night, he was a plus 32 in the box score, and he uh, he did, he he achieved that while only scoring uh, six points and only attempting five shots from the field. So, much like Lonzo Ball, they're different players, but one huge um, characteristic they share uh, between heart and ball is that they can contribute to the game in such a variety of ways. And to judge, uh, to fully judge them and appreciate who they are as a player, you kind of have to to not zoom in on one particular aspect, but zoom out and see their overall contribution to the team. Um, so, I'll, I'll still go Kuzma, um, but I I really wanted to say Hart.
0: So for me, it's Josh Hart with a bullet, and it's interesting to hear that you wanted to decide him. I have zero qualms about picking Josh Hart over Kyle Kuzma in terms of contributions this season. Kuzma has been rough from beyond the arc. Josh Hart is shooting almost 40% from deep. And if you're going to play alongside LeBron James, one of the most important factors, especially for a wing kind of player, and granted Kuzma is a bit more of a forward, but for that type of player, really the biggest requirement is if you get open threes, you have to knock them down. And of those three players, that has been Josh Hart easily this season. He's also by far the best defender of the three, even though Kuzma's looked a little bit better over the past couple weeks, and Brandon Ingram has certainly improved dramatically on that end from his rookie season. But I think that right now Josh Hart contributes in the widest variety of ways to the team. He's someone who might be the second most effective switch defender on the Lakers behind LeBron whenever he decides to try on that end of the four and obviously Lonzo, so I guess third. But even so, there really isn't anything that Jot Hart does badly, or at least anything that he does badly that he does frequently. He's not dribbling into repeated contested mid-range jumpers a la Lance Stevenson. So it's funny that we both put Brandon Ingram last on that list, but I think that says a lot about how much he's struggled to fit in with the roster this season.
1: Yeah. And and he has struggled. Um, I think it's one of those things where the narrative kind of tries to get forced and a lot, not by yourself or me, but a lot of people in the media will kind of say, oh, Ingram might be a bust or, or he's not going to fit with LeBron or, or they'll go to the trade machine and uh, try to figure out where Ingram could possibly land in trade. But I think it's more, um, more just an example of young kids going through growing pains. I think uh, Brandon made some comments recently. I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he kind of alluded to how he was um, outthinking himself or or o- overthinking things, kind of outsmarting himself. Um, I I don't know if he said it directly, but I think what he was kind of hitting on was the fact that he's taking, I, I guess you can call them like KD shots if you want to. Um, if you saw like Kevin Durant in the playoffs last year, he would he would take horribly um, inefficient two pointers and just drain them over people, but. <laughs> That's more so just because Kevin Durant's amazing and, and not really because that's a good basketball play. But um one interesting note about Josh Hart, in addition to doing everything, you know, kind of jack of all trades type thing and being a good switch defender, uh, you mentioned the, th- the uh, three-point success as well. I, I didn't realize until double-checking just now um, how far and away, um, how much better he's been than Kuzma from three. He's actually made um, two more threes on the season than Kuzma in 26 less attempts. Um, and he's uh, shooting. That's forty-one percent to thirty-one percent um, as far as Hart to Kuzma. So when you've got a, a two guard that can switch down to the, the three and and be a versatile wing and provide um, playmakers like Rondo, um, Lonzo, and LeBron with with a an outlet guy that'll stretch the defense. Um, certainly, you got to love what what Hart's contributing to LA.
0: All right, let's look forward now and talk about the outlook for the rest of the season and beyond. And I wanted to start by talking about something that we sort of touched on earlier. The Lakers have already made a pretty significant change to the roster this season by getting Tyson Chandler out of that buyout from Phoenix. But do you think that Magic Johnson and... Rob Palenka try to make a big move at the trade deadline this season or do you think they hold on to those assets either until the summer or beyond?
1: I think that as far as this season, at least at least right now, it seems more likely that the Lakers would um would want to attack the buyout market as far as tr- uh trade candidates. I mean there's always going to be people on the market, there's at least somewhat of a decent group of, of guys available right now, but it seems at least somewhat unlikely that the Lakers would want to, want to make a trade unless it was just for a, um, two scenarios I can envision. Uh, one acquiring like a, uh, you know, a Bellinelli, Corver, Tyson Chandler type guy that's past his prime, you know, in his, in his thirties, but, but still like a solid bench contributor. Um, or if they were somehow able to land a superstar. I, I don't think that seems very likely mid uh, during the year. I also think that the Lakers would be very wise to wait until the offseason to try anything like that. If you think about it in terms of this year versus next year, it appears very likely of course nothing's guaranteed, but it appears very likely the Warriors um, are trending downward rather than upward. Of course that could end up being a freezing cold take. But you also look at the notable free agents coming up and you've got guys like, uh, whether it's with a player option or not, you've got guys like Kawhi, Kemba, DeAndre Jordan, KD, Clay Thompson, Tobias Harris, Marcus Saul, Chris Middleton, uh, Nikola Miritich, Nikola Vucevic. And um, the one that's most notable of all for a lot of Laker fans would be in 2020 when Anthony Davis becomes a free agent. So I think the Lakers would be wise to just kind of chill, for lack of a better term, this year, see what they have. Um, Looks like they'll still have a great chance of making the playoffs and then head into the next um, offseason or the next couple offseasons with uh, plenty of resources and plenty of cap space.
0: Now that the dust has settled on the Jimmy Butler saga, it doesn't really seem like there are any major superstars that are on the trade market at the moment. The one thing that might be interesting for the Lakers is once December 15th hits, I would consider looking into something like a trade for Trevor Ariza, maybe just sort of sending out filler salary and a heavily protected second round pick in return. I think he's someone that could really help them on the wing. And I think he's a much better player than he showed so far in Phoenix this year as Someone else who's certainly contributing pretty majorly to the Lakers right now can attest to veterans at the moment aren't really doing all that well in Phoenix, who quietly have one of the worst ownership situations in the league. Talking about Dan Gilbert earlier, Robert Sarver is in that echelon of really terrible, terrible NBA owners. And as someone who rooted for a team that used to be owned by the Maloofs, I Certainly have a little bit of experience in those matters.
1: <laughs> yeah, you said it. Um, when it comes to Trevor Ariza, I, I really think, why not? Um, I know that I alluded to Lance Stevenson stealing minutes away from Josh Hart. And if, if you look at it in one perspective, it, it would almost seem that Trevor Ariza's role would be redundant, but is a much better player than Lance Stevenson. We saw with the last couple of years with the Rockets that he's that, that perfect kind of glue guy. He doesn't need... High usage. He doesn't need a ton of shots. He's he's out there for for things other than that. Um, just to be be a solid guy, know where to go with the ball. He's not going to dribble the ball ball into the ground. He's not going to take too many shots. He's going to not play a lead defense anymore. Definitely not. But he's going to play solid defense and and have a good defensive IQ. And when it when it comes to the playoffs. While while I think that Josh Hart even right now is, is probably better than Trevor Ariza when it comes to the playoffs, I, I want Trevor Ariza out there if if it comes down to Ariza versus Josh Hart. So if if he's going to be a buyout candidate, it makes complete sense. I mean he he's a guy that's already won a championship with the Lakers, so why not bring him back and um, add to the you know the group of veterans they have to that they've surrounded the younger guys with uh, LeBron James, Rashawn Rondo, and Tyson Chandler being the three that have. Won a title on the Lakers and that have extensive playoff experience, but if you had another guy like Ariza, I I really don't think it can hurt. I mean, he even uh, showed how much he wants to be a Laker, right? He I think he had a a heck of a game the other night at Staples Center.
0: I do want to have a camera in the locker room for when Ariza walks up to Josh Hart and asks for number three back.
1: <laughs> I would I would really like to see that as well.
0: So you talked about playoffs, and it certainly seems like the Lakers are going to comfortably cruise to a playoff spot after some hiccups early on in the season. But where do you think they will end up in terms of standings by April?
1: If you look at their record right now, they're on pace uh, to win 50 games. I believe the Vegas projections, if you're into that, were 48 or 48 and a half wins to start the year. I think both of those numbers are, are pretty realistic. I, I didn't really think that there was any chance that they were gonna be like a sixty win team or or anything north of fifty five this year. I thought fifty five would be their ceiling and and probably most likely, you know, not to give you just kind of a straightforward boring answer, but probably most likely right at their total or somewhere between forty forty eight and fifty one, fifty two wins. The Western Conference is is still, um, while it's been a little odd this year to say the least, is still um very, very strong. The Lakers aren't going to have any any more stretches, um, any more ten game stretches where where they're playing all these all these tanking teams and everything. So going forward, it's going to be you know your typical hard Western Conference schedule for the most part. And the Lakers have played really well enough to win around fifty games, but um, I don't think it's really even necessary for them to set a goal of of, of anything other than to go into the playoffs as a, a solid. Solid team playing at a high level, and uh, you know, just go from there.
0: I think the most interesting thing about the Western Conference this season is that, unlike previous years, where the West has been the stronger conference for a couple of decades now, but there were at least a couple of cupcakes on the schedule, Phoenix is the only team right now in the Western Conference that isn't either a playoff team from last year that maybe is underperforming thus far. Or is a team that looks a lot more solid than they've been in the past, and that's certainly true for the the Kings, for one, but it's really interesting that Phoenix is kind of the only soft team in terms of scheduling at this point in the year, and the West has always been a bit of a bloodbath, but having 14 teams that are still reasonably in the playoff hunt is astounding. and. I do think that the Lakers will end up being one of those playoff teams, but if I were them, I would really want to make sure that I at least get to the 6th or 7th seed because once DeMarcus Cousins comes back, if he's even half of what he was last year, adding that to the Warriors team, I think they will fight their way back to the top seed pretty quickly, and you do not want to face the Warriors in a 1-8 matchup.
1: I definitely agree. Uh, while the Warriors are currently sitting fourth, I mean it's it's almost not even mentioning their fourth. It's it's more so, you know, relevant that they're only one game back. So a uh, f- uh, first place that is with the Denver Nuggets and uh, somehow LA Clippers. But when you look at the Western Conference at the bottom of the standings, you know, if you just exclude the Suns, the bottom four teams are the Pelicans, Spurs, Rockets, and Jazz, which you wouldn't be able to to convince anybody of honestly if they weren't looking right at the standings
0: and those were all playoff teams last year by the way
1: right right and it's not as if those teams have been horrible i mean the rockets have regressed the jazz haven't been what we thought um pelicans and spurs kind of up and down but it's more so about the you know how how balanced the western conference has been um and this will be uh probably the the first time i've will ever shout out the kings but <laughs> but since I'm talking to you um it, when you got a and team proved like uh, excuse me an improved team like the uh kings that are eleven and eleven um that they're by no means an easy game anymore they've got De'Aaron and fox playing at a high level, and you've got a few other teams um in that realm that have kind of surprised people a little bit, like the Grizzlies who are currently thirteen and nine, and then um the nuggets and Clippers and thunder were all. Teams that everybody wanted to project as fringe teams, um, seventh seeds, things like that. And as it stands right now, and of course this will change, they're the top three teams in the conference. So the West really does not have any any gimme games outside of the uh, the Phoenix Suns. So it makes uh, it makes the when the Lakers play teams like the Magic, which they just uh, did twice. It makes it makes those losses inexcusable. You've you've really got to capitalize on those when you know you play the um, majority of your games against these strong Western Conference foes.
0: I've been mostly positive about the Lakers for almost an hour. You could at least give me 10 seconds to shout out <laughs> about the Kings.
1: I can give you more if you want.
0: <laughs> I'm just going to in it for now. You know, don't, don't jinx it. So let's look ahead to the time beyond this season for the Lakers. And obviously the place to start there is this upcoming free agency and the free agency after it. So – you mentioned this already that you think the Lakers might be looking more towards 2020 and hoping that Anthony Davis either opts out of his player option for the season after or makes it clear to the Pelicans front office that he will not be resigning and that they should try and get something for him while they still can. Now, I think the interesting thing about the way that the Lakers operated this past offseason, they signed LeBron and they basically zero other commitments beyond this year. And I think that's fascinating just in the sense that it seems very clearly like this season was sort of laid out as more of a figure out the lay of the land kind of situation and see who plays well with LeBron, who doesn't, and then maybe make moves after that. But it seems like, from your perspective anyway, it might even be more just gearing up not for this coming free agency, but for the free agency after it, which – I certainly would have expected from a team that's always at the forefront of pushing for whatever big name free agents on the market.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think the Lakers are necessarily, you know, I guess it depends how you want to look at it. I don't think they're necessarily of the mindset that, Hey, we're going to sit out this upcoming off season. Uh, Like we talked about earlier, there's a lot of uh, prominent free agents coming up. But if you want to kind of read the tea leaves and this is one of those things where, you know, I, Myself, as long as, as well as plenty of other Laker fans, talked about this and and kind of got laughed at, which, which almost deservedly really so, maybe. Um, talked about how, LeB- how, if you read the tea leaves, quote unquote, um, LeBron was clearly coming to the Lakers. A lot of people might roll their eyes and say, Oh, you know, the, just saying that because you're a Lakers fan, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole clutch sports connection thing is, is, I think that really actually does mean something. Um, we could do a whole podcast on that, but, but long story short, um, Anthony Davis switching agents and or agent groups and coming to uh, Clutch Sports Agency, which is the same um, firm that or the same team that represents uh, LeBron, KCP, and and several others. But Anthony Davis really does seem to be the biggest prize. Um, he's the perfect modern day uh, big or forward, however however you want to look at it. But if there's any sort of chance at all next summer to acquire um, one of the top top tier guys like a Kawhi um KD Clay Kemba anybody whose name starts with K apparently um <laughs> those would those <laughs> those would definitely <laughs> those would definitely be in play um that prospect of a of an elite shooter like a Mirotic or Vucevic is is really exciting as well but i think that even more so than prioritizing any of those guys i think the lakers will at least try to prioritize Anthony Davis. Um it of course you can't go too far over the top because you gotta, you know, take what you can when it's there. You can't, for instance, pass up a chance to get Kawhi if you think there's a fifty-fifty shot at getting Anthony Davis or or something like that. But even more so, um, to make me expect getting someone this offseason would be Magic Johnson's comments. He uh infamously said, I think it was about a few days or a week before they signed LeBron, he said um, he said that he guaranteed the Lakers would get two stars within the next two years. Or That wasn't verbatim, but it was something to that effect. So I think he really does have his eye on this uh, 2020 class. And th- that doesn't mean that the Lakers can't go get someone in this, or excuse me, the 2019 class. That doesn't mean the Lakers can't go get someone in that class and still have a chance to get Anthony Davis. Um, that would be really, really hard. But if anybody could pull it off, it'd, it'd be Magic Johnson.
0: <laughs> All right, anything else you want to talk about before we wrap
1: up? um I just just one quick thing i I do want to say the Lakers really do look like they're playing um unselfish basketball right now. um at the beginning of the year was chemistry, you know how to work itself out, stuff like that, but right now they're really playing like um they care more about winning and not about stats, and to me that's uh that's really a hallmark of um a growing um and smart team.
0: All right. Well, he is Nathan Smith. You can find him on Twitter at NateSmithNBA, and you can find his written work on the hashtag basketball website. He will be coming out with new articles on the Lakers offseason and his second edition of the All Underrated Team soon, so be on the lookout for that. You can find my work on the hashtag basketball website as well, and can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on your podcast player of choice. And if you have any feedback about future episodes, about the episodes we've been doing, please feel free to reach out to me via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.